Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are Ron Rash and his brother Tom and his sister Kathy Rash Brewer. And we're going to talk about growing up in South Carolina and North Carolina and particularly the family life that helped produce Ron Rash, the novelist. I'm sure that listeners don't need to be reminded that Ron Rash is from Western Carolina University, where he spent most of his professional career. But he's a native-born South Carolinian. He was born and grew up in Chester, South Carolina. And where do you fit into the family with these three? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest, okay. And how does who's the middle child? I'm the Tom, the middle child. Uh, Tom, I could have picked it out. I know I'm a middle child. <laughs> you have to take care of the other two. That's your job. That's exactly <laughs> what I did. <laughs> okay, the peacemaker, Kathy. You you were the you were the oldest, so you were the boss. No, I was the youngest. You were the youngest, but I still but was, she was the, boss. the boss. Yeah, she <laughs> was the boss. Yeah, yeah. You you got that right. She still is the boss. <laughs> okay. Let's let's talk about life in Eureka Mill Village in Chester, South Carolina. And whoever wants to go first can. Well, I was very young at the time. Uh, so the mainly what I remember was my uh, grandmother and how she just doted on us. Yeah, that's right. It was a multi-generational family. Your grandparents were there as well as you and your, fa- your parents. That's correct. Um, and your grandparents and your parents both worked in the, worked in the mills. That's correct. Okay. And my grandmother would uh, give us all the moon pies and Coca-Cola we wanted as long as we didn't tell our parents. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tom, you were a little yeah. bit older. What do, what do you remember about Well, I have very fond mem- memories of my uh, grandmother coming home after work with the moon pies, and that which was a rare treat for us. Uh, I also have um, distinct memories of the railroad tracks nearby and the train coming by. It sounded as if it were coming right through the house. Uh, And uh, also just uh, occasional forays down to Darby's grocery store to get, uh, again, forbidden fruit. We would get taffy and things like that that, you know, we were probably weren't supposed to have. But our grandmother uh, made sure that we uh, were spoiled in that way, that we got some treats that we otherwise wouldn't have gotten. All right. So by that time, she herself was not working in the mills. Is that right? Oh, uh, actually, she still she was. was still, she still was? Yes. Yeah. yeah. She, that was, she, would, uh, she was working. I remember uh, she would work a shift that got off in the evening, maybe 10 o'clock. And I remember a couple of times waiting, getting to wait up long enough for her to come because I knew she'd bring us something. Give us the time period on that. Yeah. Okay, well, I, yeah, this would have been late, very late 50s, yeah, uh, during that period. And that story, I think, is just an amazing story uh, about what they did. Uh, my grandmother went into the mill at 14. Uh, my grandfather could not read or write, and they sacrificed so much so that uh, our father, their only child, uh, had opportunities that— uh, they didn't have, and, and that enabled my father and my mother to give me opportunities. So I think uh, all three of us have been very grateful for those generations, the way they sacrificed. All right. So both your grandparents' families moved to Chester to work in the mill. That, that's where your grandparents met, was in the mill, right? Right, yeah. Both mountain families had moved from uh, my the rashes from Buncombe County and my mother's family from Watauga County. But like, you know, that's that's that was a... Fairly common story. A lot of people coming out of the mountains to work in the Piedmont. And they were actually recruited by the mills. Once South Carolina really got into the textile revolution in the 1890s, they sent folks out to the mountains Mm -hmm. of what little bit South Carolina, North Carolina, and over into East Tennessee to recruit those workers. And they recruited families. And I don't know how it was at Eureka, but in many mills in South Carolina, the size house you got depended upon how many hands you put into the mill. And, we, and Ron has written uh, a, a great poem about the, the uh, decision my mother had to make about going down to Chester from the mountains. Uh, she had relatives who had come up, and they had told her about the opportunity and so my mother thought about it, but she didn't have to think too hard because she was tired of 
you know, the hard work on that farm, uh, you know, farm work, and had other aspirations. So she went down to and met my father. She worked in the cafeteria, actually, and that's where she met my father, uh, was in the cafeteria. And that, Ron's written an excellent poem about that and that whole issue of fate, whether or not, you know, you view that as it was just fated that she would make that decision. She would meet my father in that spot and his, you know, the outcome of that. And then that's one of one of his best poems, I think. Well, see, now you're talking about another generation following on to your grandparents who, where folks are still moving to the mills in terms of employment. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are women, young women moving to the mills shouldn't be a surprise to folks in New England because that's who used to be recruited to begin with to work in the mills. But in South Carolina, they recruited, as I said, whole whole families. Did your father go to work in the mill at an early age? He did. He actually dropped out of high school. But uh, then uh, he met my mother and they both, I think, had, you know, they wanted to do more with their lives. And my father went back and got a GED. My mother had graduated from high school. And they began this, uh, to me, heroic journey. Uh, my, my father actually would work a shift at the mill and then uh, take a bus to get night classes and started working on his college degree. Uh, ultimately became a high school teacher in Chester. Where was he taking his night courses? In Columbia. Somehow he got Columbia College to let him in, even though he was mailed at, at night. They, Columbia College was open to, to male students in, in night school. It used to be, it wasn't just Columbia College, but if you wanted to, a teacher in rural South Carolina, you had to commute either to Clemson or to Columbia, to the university, mm-hmm. at night to take your courses in order to get accreditation, which took a lot of, as you said, a lot of dedication. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to tell one story that uh, I think says a lot, and that is while my father was still in high school, he decided that he wanted to teach himself Latin. Uh, and the principal of the school saw him carrying a, a Latin primer around and asked him about it. And my father told him what it was. And the principal said, Rash, he said, you don't need that, son. He said, you're going to be nothing but a linhead. And I think that's an indication of the lack of expectation from one end, and then also the resolve that my father had and my mother. You know, my father, I think, had aspirations beyond the Mill Village, and he was always an intellectual uh, even then. The comment, Tom, does not surprise me, uh, but it might be jarring to folks' ears here in the in the 21st century that the principal says, eh, you don't have any future, you're going to you're going to be Lynn Hedge, you're going to work in the mill. Or you could have said Bob and Dodger, either way. You're, you're, it's a pejorative term. And folks need to understand, as important as the textile industry was to South Carolina, um, you mentioned the railroad tracks, Tom, earlier. You were the other side of the tracks. And I don't think Chester County had, or the town of Chester had, a tri-school system, but in nearby Rock Hill, you had a school system for African Americans, you had a school system for the white town folk, and then through the elementary grades, you had a school for the mill folk. It was not segregation by race, but it was segregation by class. But that story also has, in some ways, a very interesting ending, or uh, my father later taught that principal's daughter at Chester High. (laughs) Yeah. did, did did the principal remember that? I, you know, I don't know, but uh, he did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was always an interesting mix in Chester of uh, just down the street, you could have some very, very large houses that belonged to doctors, lawyers. The juxtapositioning of the, uh, you know, the socioeconomic world you know, you just walked the streets and you were very aware of it. Uh, you saw these huge houses. Uh, and, of course, the mill owners themselves, you know, would have their own uh, large houses. But uh, we we were lucky, I think, in that we lived in a house that was larger in a lot of ways when we were growing up. 
And the best thing about it was the front porch because there was a lot of sitting out on the porch uh, at night, conversations. I mean, I can remember as a, I was very young, but I can remember the adults sitting out on that front porch in Chester because you went out there to escape the heat. And uh, it was, you know, it was very important. Did y'all live in this? Was your, were your grandparents living in the same house? No. No. Okay. She lived, but she lived, I guess, what, five houses down? Five or six it houses just, down? It was just very a few close. houses down, very yeah. close. Very we close. Could, yeah. I remember when I was three years old, I could walk to her house. Yes. Okay. Kathy, that, I mean, today, you've got parents who don't want to let their children walk next door, much less walk five houses down, which might be half a block. Uh, we have more stories to tell you about later that <laughs> about when we were in well growing up Lash, we uh i think we we rival the conroys in some ways as far as uh, and and the best storyteller in the family is actually kathy and i'm sure she can enlighten you on many interesting moments we had well, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just before kathy talks i'm just talking about how we we were trusted in hickory when we were in second third grade our parents would send us off to school and we would walk a mile or two and then in Bowling Springs we had a lot of the same thing which we were I think we were very lucky when did y'all leave Chester I was eight years old and uh, Kathy you were just a baby I was three yeah yeah you were uh, so we're talking about what date uh, this would have been 1961 61 yeah okay yeah. and of course Bowling Springs that's where Gordon Webb is yeah okay all right. So where, where does Hickory come Hickory in? comes after Chester. We moved to Hickory. My father taught at Lenore Ryan, and we lived there. And uh, then we moved to Bowling Springs when my father got a job at Gardner-Webb. Okay. But our father was just an amazing man in many ways. He was an inventor. Uh, he was a, uh, an artist. And uh, I think he inspired all of us. And it's interesting, I think uh, each of us got different uh, aptitudes from him. I mean, Kathy's a ceramic engineer, and that analytical part of him, um, I think she has followed that. And Tom and I, I think more the uh, humanistic, you know, the love of art, uh, which my mother has as well, uh, certainly. So I think in a way it was a, it was a wonderful family to grow up with, but we knew we were different, uh, and we were kind of viewed as a very strange family. All right, I, I want to hear more of that, and, and you two fellows both said that Kathy was yes. the boss, and you all have done most of the talking, and now I want to let the boss yes. talk about why you all were such an unusual family, oh boy. and folks thought about, well, there go those rashes, and everybody would wink and understand what that meant. Well, first let me say that uh, our family was like the Munsters, and do you remember there was that one normal cousin Marilyn yeah. who they thought was so strange I'm cousin Marilyn so <laughs> just to get that out on the table but uh, I think the best way uh, I was with a group of my friends uh, women friends and we were talking around uh, talking about how weird my family was and one of my friends said that can't be true no family is weird all families are the same there's no such thing as a normal family so I started a whole list of things of, you know, okay, raise your hand if your mother kept uranium in the spice cabinet. Oh, my, my hand's the only one raised? Uh, you no, know. wait a minute. Okay, let's, let's, let's have a footnote to that. Your mother kept uranium in the spice cabinet. <laughs> uh, my father was using it, somehow got it, we don't know, but he was using it to make experimental glazes. But I guess if you were going to have it, the spice cabinet was probably the most appropriate place for that. But uh, So then I followed that with raise your hand if you had a human skull in your linen closet. And as I looked around, my none of my other friends had their hands raised. So I can go on with a whole list of those. we've got to have footnotes to this. I mean, was that to scare the moths away? What was, what was No, the... apparently my father got a, a skull from somewhere. We don't know where he ended up with these things. And We don't think it was a relative. but We're not sure who it was. I think was. it was Yorick, actually. <laughs> but he used it. He liked to try to paint it because he thought it had interesting shadows. So he would um, use that in his painting classes, but my brothers would use it to scare me. They would wait until I was asleep and then hide it under my pillow or something like that. Um, 
They did that until the one day I almost got a concussion because I went diving on the bed and the skull was under my pillow and I about cracked my head open. So that kind of stopped that okay. nighttime activity. Okay. That, that's, that's, I think, just an interesting prologue. I got to hear, hear some more. Raise your hand if stories. Oh, gosh, I'll have to think of some of the others. Raise your hand if... If your father walked around with a dead mouse in his shoe, that would be a good story. That, that yes. was a good one. Uh, uh, okay, <laughs> it happened. For months. His foot, his foot was hurting, and I mean, he kept talking about his foot hurting, and finally my mother, I mean, for weeks, and then my mother looked in his shoe, and there was a dead mouse in, the, in his shoe. Um, I, I, I mean, I hate to... to, to Ask, didn't your father smell the fact that, that my be? father was oblivious to most of the world? I mean, he lived in his head. Uh, he was an artist, and he was thinking about other things, mundane things such as mice in your shoes. That doesn't really matter. That you can, you, you need to be focusing on other things. Well, here's another one, uh, Daddy went to teach and he got out of the car and was walking to his office and noticed he forgot to put on shoes. So he had to call Ron to rush shoes to him so he could go teach his class. So he was late for his class because he's waiting for his yeah. shoes. He was the classic yeah. absent-minded yeah. professor. I mean, he's yeah. he was one incredibly brilliant yes. man and but and very artistic. As, as, and I think that's where, I, I, I think we'd all agree, the happiest we ever would see him would be when he was working, usually uh, ceramics, and and in in the you know in the art department, and that I mean he was an artist, and that was uh, that's how I remember him as being ha happiest. Okay, now, Ron, you had said earlier people looked at your family as being weird, and all this stuff is happening in the house. Did you kids do anything that make folks think about the rashes were a little bit different? Okay. Well, I, Kathy didn't, <laughs> but I, no, I didn't. I lived a pretty. I mean, I made decent grades. I played basketball and tennis. I think Ron was the one who was a little doing things a little differently. He was running before running was popular. For so, example, yeah, you, you, you were know. you were a track star. Tra yeah, he was uh, very maybe not a star, but I, well, I ran he was in high quite school. He was quite good at running and he ran by this was before you know all of the books and all that and he would run to school in the mornings four or five miles to school and then change clothes go to class or at least he went to class he was not a stellar student to say the least but uh that's because he was sitting in the back of the room reading moby dick or look homeward angel or something like that and thinking and, you know, the as I said, I'm back to the more mundane things just didn't interest him, such as listening to the teacher, whatever the teacher might be talking about that day. Well, I can tell you, having walked across the University of South Carolina campus with your brother, I've often been accused of having a fast pace. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, but... Uh, Yes, he strides. He well, strides. He strides along. Well, I, I, we've got to have Kathy talk because she was actually the normal one in the family. And I, I, you've got to tell some a couple more stories about what that was like being Marilyn Munster. Uh, well, I think um, so much of it, I, I didn't realize quite how bizarre my family was till I actually started meeting more normal people. But um, just like our father bought old, old used Cadillacs from funeral homes. He bought them because they were very, very inexpensive and because he thought they were so much safer. So it was a, an utter embarrassment to have to ride around in these long, old Cadillacs with the funeral home business cards still in the glove box. Um, so, you know, that was when, you know, it was horrible enough being a teenager with parents, but then parents in those big, long, awful Cadillacs, we'd make them drop us off blocks away. <laughs> well, I, I bet you, give, we talked about the time frame, the 60s, I bet you one of those had to be a 57 Cadillac with those huge fins. Yes. Yes. It was. It was. Exactly. We had, and we had one, the most memorable one was black with white leather interior, uh, classic funeral car. And it had power windows, 
and my basketball teammates, I occasionally would give them rides home, and they would just sit back there playing with the windows because they never had the opportunity to do anything but crank a window. And some of them thought I was rich because I had that Cadillac. I, what I, you know, I kept telling them, look, this thing is about 20 years yeah, old. They were like 15 or 20 years yes, old. It wasn't they new. Just, they thought, no. they, but they were amazed by this Cadillac. I but think we, Daddy paid, oh, I think one time, it was like right at $1,000 maybe. Yes, and we had to take our driving test in these cars, mm. and you had to make a three-point turn. What about a parallel park? Uh, no, you didn't have to parallel park, but you had to make a three-point turn on this little road, and it was not easy. Now, it seems to me that those Cadillacs figured in a couple of your stories, Ron. They did. That's how I dealt with the trauma. <laughs> because when, when, I, when I first started dating, I had to, that was what I had to pick my date up in. And it was, uh, and, and, and I can remember one time I went to Shelby, which was about eight miles away, and, and, and suddenly we were near the theater. And, and usually there was a place where I wouldn't have to really have to parallel park. And so I, uh, tried and I couldn't couldn't do it. I couldn't get the car in there I wasn't and and you know my my date was just looking at me uh, uh, amazed uh, you know what is this you know and people were looking so it was like a spectacle yes well I guess you should have told her to play with the window while you <laughs> tried to park yeah. I'd like to add something um, that I think is very important and that is uh, about books and reading and the fact that our parents, had books uh, everywhere in our house. And my father's desk downstairs was stacked with art books. Books were surrounded us. And, and it was just osmosis, really, that all three of us loved to read. Uh, we still love to read. We loved to read back then. We still love to read. Obviously, Ron does, but I do too, and Kathy does. And I think it was, um, they didn't talk to us about it. But we just, it was in the air. And we learned to love uh, reading and we learned to love art um, without our parents having to say anything about it. And I think that that's something that. Well, I think what they showed, though, was the fact we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, Daddy, remember, he was still repaying college loans long. I mean, you know, when we were almost grown. But the idea that you would buy those. When, you know, when, when uh, your family doesn't have a lot of money, I mean, uh, that, I think, showed an importance, how important they were. You know, the person I haven't heard a lot from is your mother. The only thing you've talked about is she had a high school degree before your dad did, but you haven't really talked much about your, your mother in this, you know, I got, I got the picture of your daddy, not just from what you said, but also from Ron's yeah. books. Yeah. Well, uh, Kathy, our mother was is still incredible. Um, she went back to school when we were young and had a family, took care of a family, and got her undergraduate degree, went on to get a master's degree, and even did some additional work um, after her master's degree. So she became a teacher. Um, I think she definitely shared the love of reading, the love of the mountain crafts, which unfortunately I never could quite get interested in, but the... Uh, so she quilted like your grandmother? Yes. I was the kid, when I was two years old, I didn't want to ride my tricycle, I wanted to take it apart. So I was going to be an engineer, and that started when I was two years old and never changed. So um, I just had a totally different mind. But uh, our mother uh, definitely was incredible. She had a very difficult uh, time, especially when my father uh, went through very severe depression. Um, my mother kept our family together. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the funniest thing about my mother, I, I tell her this, and it's not much of an exaggeration, is she went from traditional doting housewife and mother to liberated woman in one day. All of a sudden, she got a short haircut. We called it the Yoko Ono haircut. <laughs> And she kind of was like, okay, I'm a liberated woman now. And it seemed to happen like overnight. So it, it threw our family for a loop. We had quite some adjusting to do. Yeah, and <laughs> Kathy, she, Kathy, Mom had a great line about Kathy. 
when Kathy was 14, she, she told me, the only thing unhappier than a 14-year-old girl is her mother. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'll, I'll add this about my mother. Uh, and I think this is very important. And Ron has said this about Ann. The wife, uh, the spouse, I should say, it can work either way, of the artist has to be give up a lot, uh, has to be able to accept the fact that that individual is going to be in his or her own world. And my mother gave my father space, room to be creative and did not, you know, she did what she had to do to keep things together uh, in the family and she gave him that freedom. She did not judge him. She, I can't remember her ever saying negative things to him about you know, the time he was spending uh, at the art department, and he would spend long stretches of time at the art department. She just carried on, and that's, you know, that's much to her credit, and that allowed our family to be, I think, much happier um, because, because of that. Well, the Anne you mentioned is Ron's wife. Yeah, yeah, and and that's had the same thing. I mean, it's not easy being married to an artist, no, and uh, it's very difficult. But uh, I think our mom really came through when our dad had to be hospitalized because of the depression. I mean, I think she she really, you know, looking back on it, I don't think I appreciated how much she was going through. Folks, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with the Rash siblings, Ron, Tom, and Kathy. We've been talking about growing up and the family and its impact on Ron and, and vice versa, but recently a special exhibit, the Ron Rash Archive, opened in the Hollings Special Collection at the University of South Carolina, and it brought to Columbia three rash siblings. Tom, why did you come down from the mountains to Columbia? I think that that was a significant day in our family's history because Ron was officially recognized in a totally different way. The University of South Carolina did a spectacular job showcasing his work and his influences. They treated treated us so well as a family and honored our not only Ron but also our family and I think that it's it's just so important for his work to be collected so that in the future scholars graduate students readers can come to the University of South Carolina and they can get the, the whole picture. All right, so we're talking about the Ron Rash Archive, which is now part of Special Collections at the University of South Carolina. And Ron, why did you decide to part with uh, not just your papers, which, by the way, go back, I think, to elementary school? You sure you're not a historian? You've been saving this stuff for... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, our mom... I had more to do with some of the early things. She did throw away all our baseball cards. Tom and I have never forgiven her for that. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it just turned out to be a really good fit. Uh, actually, I, I, Pat Conroy had a lot to do with it. He had talked to Tom McNally at the university and said that I might be, a, or I, he felt I was a writer that USC should discuss as a poss possibly having my archive here. And so for the pretty much the last two years, we've pursued this. But I had been to the collection before, and I've seen their rare books. I mean, uh, Shakespeare's second folio, uh, more of F. Scott Fitzgerald's work than anywhere else in the world. And it's just it's such a wonderful research library. And, and uh, I, I'm just so honored uh, that, that USC has been interested and, and we've been able to, to pursue this. And when we had the event, uh, I, the exhibits, uh, the everything was just amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the, the exhibit and, and listeners out there know that I strike up the band for anything Southern, but I totally approved of the, the title of the exhibit, More Than a Southern Author. And I've had Ron on the show a number of times going all the way back to Saints at the River. And yes, Ron's settings may be Southern, but he speaks to the universal 
man and woman uh, experiences. And, and I think Ron deals with mountain folk who have real problems. Sometimes they're outside forces, sometimes they're personal problems, but there's no pity. This isn't a pity party. He's not wringing his hands um, because a young woman's dealing with meth, not very well, or somebody's got an overbearing grandfather uh, who is such an ogre, I'm glad I never met him. <laughs> uh, so I think that's what you need to understand about the Rash Collection is don't limit Ron to just being a Southern writer. Uh, he is a South Carolinian by birth, grew up in here and in North Carolina. I, I told somebody at the dedication, Ron, because um, they questioned my comments about you were universal, and I said, if you went to a writer's workshop, what's the first thing they can tell you? Write about what you know. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, yeah, somebody can set a novel in Napoleonic France, but this is a world that Ron knows and he writes about, but he's not limiting the men and women and the children, some children very important, to that world. They're having experiences that can be understood anywhere. How many languages has Serena been published in, Ron? I think it may be 17 now. 17 languages. I think it's a great failure of imagination on the part of readers if uh, they cannot get beyond that regional tag. you know, whether you're talking about Ron, whether you're talking about Faulkner, uh, whether you're talking about Eudora Welty or O'Connor, or whether you're talking about Updike or Roth or Richard Ford and Walker Percy, uh, to me, it's just uh, a failure of imagination. And these these books, I mean, the word universal is used over and over, but yes, they are. I mean, they are very much universal, just as Shakespeare is you know, universal. And, um, yeah, and I think with that, I mean, one thing I've noticed when I go overseas, because I've been countries, you know, New Zealand, Denmark, uh, for, I just came back from France two weeks ago, and people are interested in the Southern culture. And then when they read my books, they're interested in that. But, but what they always tell me ultimately is they understand these people, that th- these people are more like them ultimately in that, you know, their sense of... Uh, you know, the love, hope, pity, uh, you know, what Faulkner called the verities, the old verities of love and hate and pity. And to me, that's where I see regional writing uh, and, and universality. Uh, it's not a contradiction. Uh, James Joyce, Ulysses, you could argue, is the most uh, regional book there is, 24 hours in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to make a comment about the uh, not writing with pity mm-hmm. um, and where I think that was influenced. Our grandmother, my, my father's mother, was so optimistic uh, despite a really challenging life. And I can remember when she talked about working as a child, starting when she was 14, that she was very lucky because she got to work the children's hours, and that was only 10 hours a day. So she saw that as being very lucky because her mother started when she was 10 or 12, I think, 10 maybe, had to stand on an apple crate, and they didn't have something as wonderful as children's hours back then. But um, my grandmother never saw her life as hard or difficult, and I think that maybe would have influenced kind of that lack of pity yeah. Um, I don't know, Ron, what you think there, but... Well, I, I think what what I've tried to do in, in, in my writing is, and particularly dealing with Appalachia, because there's so many stereotypes, uh, uh, it's what you brought up earlier, that if, if I sentimentalize these people, it's just kind of noble suffering, that's as bad as demonizing them, mm-hmm. because either way I'm saying they're not human yeah. or something else. Yeah, Ron, when we were, t- we were talking about it, driving to to the studio and some current books. Your people, they're real. When I read your book, it, it's, it, it strikes an emotion in me. Some of the things I read today could be straight out of the late 19th century. There's evil force from outside that's causing all the problems and people don't know how to deal with it. Folks know what they're dealing with, the lumber company that comes into the mountains and is going to denude everything, what that's going to cause to their to their way of life. When the hippie culture begins to penetrate western North Carolina and marijuana creeps in and then 
misuse of, of drugs. People understand that there's something there, and they don't sit around wringing their hands. Some cope with it, some don't. That's a very real situation. If you think about this story, the ascent, which to me, in, in a lot of ways, epitomizes this, the characters in there, you, you feel some sense of concern because they seem to be neglectful in ways, not so much of their, and you wonder whether it's of their own making or not, how much of this is in their control with the drug addiction and so on, but you also sense their love uh, for their child, and sometimes I think people are afraid of complexity, and these are complex characters. You feel sorrow for them, for the plight. You understand that they are in some ways responsible for the situation that they are in, but you also feel strongly that they love the child and that they wish they could do better. And they're, they're suffering for that also. So I think that one story in some ways shows how, you know, Ron does a great job of bringing out the, the just raw humanity of these individual characters. You know, you, the characters are complex, and you've got, to, you've got to read and think about this, and there's a mix of emotions. Now, the exceptions being somebody like Serena, maybe. You know, there is, you do have, just as Shakespeare has his Iagos and Edmonds, you do have characters who are just... Well, I, that, yeah. that gives, Tom, that gives me a, na- a natural segue to go into, back to Ron and his, his collections, which are now in the university's special collections. And that is, there was a great exhibit set out there in the special collections at the university, starting with your grammar school, I think, or middle school notebooks. And you also gave them part of your library. That's the one thing that kind of shocked me. There were books off of your shelf that you gave. And the curator there, Jessica, the curator there at the university, had tied in quotations from your books to Shakespeare and others. It's kind of kind of revealing. Were you expecting that? No. I mean, what, what, what Jessica uh, has done with that uh, exhibit uh, is I, I teared up because she has spent several months working on that. And to have someone take that kind of attention and care to really match up you know, different aspects of my life and to make it cohere. Uh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm still astounded by it and uh, uh, just uh, honored. Well, again, for many of us, books, books are so important. I have books on my shelf. I can't imagine giving away some of those things right now. I mean, that, that had to be tough. Yeah, but I, I thought it would be of interest because I, when I read a biography of a writer, uh, I'm always interested in who did this writer read? Uh, what did this writer think of uh, this particular book? And, and sometimes you see it in the marginalia. Uh, sometimes you see uh, writers who sometimes they'll comment on it, but I thought, I thought that would be helpful maybe and interesting to people that uh, I'd read these plays, for instance, Macbeth, very carefully. Uh, I'd read Whitman very carefully. And this, there are those moments when it's reflected in, in the work itself. I was actually delighted to see that you made notes Years ago, when Bill Starr was the book editor here at the Columbia State, we had a great book page. This was a discussion, Bill. He treated books as objects. You know, he got a first edition, and he wrapped it in plastic, and he put it up. And he was over the house, and he said, you know, you've got a four-volume set of Wallace's 1939 history, and you've been writing in the margin. It's not worth anything now. And I said, well, Bill, I don't have the book to resell yeah, right. if I'm going to use a book. Right. I, I learned that from Ron. Uh, I read when I read a book, I mark it up. I highlight, I underline. I put stars by. I put ha ha if I think something's funny. 
and you know, I learned that from him. And it's the great thing about it is then, then you, after you've read the book, you can go back and remind yourself, oh yeah, that, you know, the great line or the funny line. Well, Tom, it's it's also like you know, you you go back and read a, something that you've underlined or made a comment. You might read it ten years later and. Yeah have a totally different perspective. That's true, too. I mean, how can it not be a dialogue between the two of you, the reader and the writer? And you're just going back and forth, and you're noting things, and I don't know how it could not be. Now, I think this exhibit does an excellent job, the best I've ever seen, of showing how the reading of a writer carried over to that writer's work. It does a wonderful job of that, and I don't think people realize how, you know, whether it's conscious or subconscious. I'm sure Ron would say sometimes it's subconscious. Something that he's read in Shakespeare's may just surface, uh, or it may just linger, and, but it's there. Uh, and I think that uh, the fact that he, as I said, when he was in high school, what he was doing was preparing for the time when he would write. That's why he was reading Moby Dick. Uh, but I do have a funny story about those high school years. Uh, I was uh, did a reading near where I grew up in Boiling Springs a few years ago, and uh, about three years ago, and uh, I was kind of a... Well, I'm not kind of. I was a misfit in high school. I, I pretty much would stay up in my room on Fridays and Saturday nights. And anyway, uh, at the reading, there were three middle-aged women at the back, and they looked familiar. And I realized, oh, that's Melissa Jolly. That's Janie Patterson. And, and they were three uh, women who had, I'd grown up with in high school. And Melissa came up after the reading and said, Ron, when did you become a writer? I said, those weekend nights, you wouldn't go out with me. <laughs> I think there's another great uh, story about how our parents supported him in an interesting way. Um, I remember one time he came home with a report card, and we talked uh, earlier. Uh, I, I recalled one D and the rest Fs, but uh, apparently I was being just way too critical. Ron thought it was two Ds and the rest F, but either way, he didn't want our parents to see it and so he convinced them that if they would just sign it without looking at his grades he promised he would do better and our parents in their wisdom did that did you do better the next report i did but i mean not significantly better i think one of the first things they had to deal with uh, kathy and tom both when when uh, they they ended up at the high school was i mean one teacher actually asked are you kidding to ron rash and that was not a good thing uh well uh, he has the world's record for the lowest average in French. It was a four, a four out of 100, and that's because I think he got credit once or twice for putting his name. I was a, a good student, and now the French teacher who recent, recently saw Ron has conflated things to the point that she now sees my efforts as his, <laughs> and she thinks her memory now is that he was this excellent yeah. student in her French class when actually he was one of the worst in the yeah. history of her French classes. Tom. So we think she actually, you know, due to the trauma, forgot about yeah. Ron. So yeah. that's our theory. Madame Hedden, if you're out there. Yeah, Madame yes. Well, and what's funny also with this is that uh, when I first got my first book published in France, um, I, I, I called Kathy. And I, I was very full of myself. Said, uh, "Yeah, I've just been published and uh, translated into French. Uh, I wonder what Madame Hedden would say now." And Kathy, I mean, she did not skip a beat. Said, "She'd say, I know who didn't translate it." <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, you were talking about your parents' support, but Kathy, you and your husband came to Ron's rescue and helped him become a writer at a crucial time. And I think you need to talk about that. That's big sister or little sister making a sacrifice. Well, I knew Ron wanted to be a writer. Uh, at the time, he was teaching at a community college. He had five classes uh, with quite a large number of students. And he was teaching English. Uh, plus, he had a family and a wife, so trying to uh, balance those demands. Um, he shared that he was very frustrated that he didn't have time to time to write. Um, at, at this time, you had published at least one short story? I, yeah, I'd published uh, some. I was starting to, to really, I think, hit my 
rhythm as a writer. I knew that, you know, in a sense, if I'm going to do it, it would be now. All right, time, chronological time, year. This would have been, what was it, Kathy? You probably remember. Late 90s, right? Yes, it's it's 20, yeah, late 90s, almost 20 years ago, uh, the first time. But you know how you always look for that perfect gift for someone, and it dawned on me that that gift of time was something I could actually give him. So I contacted the college where he was teaching and asked about being able to support somehow so that he had uh, more time. And they actually, Ron says I bought him out of bondage. I don't know if it's quite that melodramatic, but um, I was able to, um, my husband and I were able to give money to the uh, college, and they actually got an adjunct professor to come handle his workload. So, Buying out somebody's time is used to be, I don't want to say unusual, but if you were trying to write, some semesters you would teach an overload so that yeah. in the spring you might have a reduced course, but it's it's the same principle. So uh, yeah, she did that four years in a row. Four years in a row, and you had a family as well. I mean, yes, but it was a great thing to do, and I can continually hold it over his head for the rest of yeah. his life. So I kind of <laughs> got that going on too. And that's that's been one of the great things about this exhibit is that in a way I, I think it's conf- confirmation that. You know, she spent her money maybe better than what buying playing bingo or whatever. And Tom has been really, a, a, you know, a wonderful brother. Uh, he's been uh, my first editor uh, and has made my work so much better. So is, I just feel very lucky. Is, to have is he still such, your first editor? Yeah, yeah. Still, mm. Maxwell, and, Maxwell Perkins. I tell people they they have no idea. People who don't understand how hard writers work at trying to get things just right. But with one foot in Eden, I, I remember how many hours we spent working on the dialect and trying to get that balance between uh, giving a flavor of the language without it turning into Snuffy Smith. And Eudora Welty is always a great model for that. But you've, it's just about you just got to take out certain phrases, certain words, and you've got to get that perfect balance. And it's not easy to do, and we, we went back and forth, and I said, well, maybe you need to take this word out here because you just had this very colloquial word here. And over over time, I think that's one of the things I've helped him with the most. Well, you know, and <laughs> yeah, I need all the help I can get, and I've never, I, I, I've never had a, I, I think with any editor, uh, I think one of my strengths is that it's all about the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anything that makes it better, even if it were for someone I disliked, if that sentence is better, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about the work, and I think that's where we have to learn. You know, I think there's a really interesting balancing act as a writer. You, have, you Obviously, you have to have a good bit of confidence to do mm-hmm. it. You have to believe you're going, you can say something that you people will find great pleasure or feeling, whatever, in it. But... Uh, at the same time as an artist, you've got to be aware of your own blind spots. We've been talking about the Ron Rash Archives, which is in the Hollings Special Collections. You get there by going through the Thomas Cooper Library, the main library on the university campus. It's a very evocative exhibit. It's got your mother's quilt, and then it's got a poem of yours, mm-hmm. Invocation. And what is the inspiration for that? I... Once again, I think that intense debt I feel for my mother and father, uh, the life they gave me. And, and our mother, we really haven't talked about her, but she is very artistic. And, and uh, she's had several shows herself with quilts. And, and if people do go to the exhibit, to me, the most impressive single feature is her quilt. <laughs> uh, it's, it's beautiful. And it's of the mountains because she grew up in the, uh, near Boone, North Carolina. Uh, but the poem was, a, a, I think in a way, it, it, I'm kind of glad you brought that up, because in a way I think it's kind of become what we've been talking about all the way. You know, I, at the end of the poem, I, I talk about them living their lives as gears in Springs' cotton mill, but let me not forget your lives were more than that. And I think that's where we come into the part about humanity and victimization and you know sentimentality versus... Uh, demonization, note those questions. And uh, 
and I and I think that's why uh, you know uh, I've had people respond to the work strongly overseas uh, that they recognize uh, that, those aspects. All right, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words briefly before? Well, I've got to to thank you personally, Walter. Uh, you were one of the first people who took notice of my work, not just in South Carolina, anywhere, and. You've supported it now, gosh, what, two decades at least, mm-hmm. and uh, believed in it. And, and my, one of my hopes about this archive is that maybe I made you proud, too. Oh, you did, bud. Ab- absolutely. All right. Tom? Yes, I just wanted to add one thing about Ron. I don't think people talk about the fact that he's also an excellent teacher. He teaches uh, writing at Western Carolina University, but going back to the days when he taught at community college and even high school, he's always been an excellent teacher. Kathy? I just want to thank everybody at USC. Uh, This is coming from a Clemson grad, so (laughs) you know it's truly sincere. Uh, But Jessica and everyone, just an incredible job. Uh, with this exhibit. I'm so impressed and so proud of my brother. Okay. All right. We're talking about Jessica Crouch, who's the curator of the exhibit. Yes. Okay. Well, again, I want to thank Ron Rash and his brother Tom and his sister Kathy Rash Brewer. And uh, it's been a great pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I've known about Ron Rash and his work for two decades, and what a treasure that the university now has in the Ron Rash archive. It's just unbelievable. Ron Rash is more than a Southern author. He speaks to the universal through the folks of Appalachia. Finding out about what life was like with Brother Tom and Sister Kathy, how growing up as siblings with their parents and grandparents influenced Ron's work and how they continue to support Ron in his work. Folks, it was really special. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.